You are listening to the Dark Fantastic Podcast. Welcome to this new episode of the Dark Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, AK. My guest on this episode is one of my all-time favorite filmmakers and one of the reasons I fell in love with cinema in the first place. He has worked on commercials, feature films, short films, and everything in between. He has directed movies such as Arlington Road, The Mothman Prophecies, Henry Poole is Here, I Melt With You, and his latest dance feature film, The Severing. This is a conversation and a filmmaking masterclass with Mark Pellington. Because I know your background, you, you graduated with a degree in rhetoric, which basically has nothing to do with movies or filmmaking. So was there a defining moment or a defining movie or a specific filmmaker that, you know, drove you to pursue this, uh, this career, basically? I was always into um, music. I was like music and writing. And I thought I wanted to work in the music business. And um, rhetoric is like the study of persuasion. So it was always about writing and journalism. And then when I got an internship and then the job at MTV in the 80s, I learned about editing, right? I learned about editing and collage and kind of making little pieces. And that got me into filmmaking that way, into through post-production, through editing. And um, so going that way and starting to make music videos and starting to kind of make things in the 80s had opened me up to the visual side. But I was equally into documentary and art and experimental film and, you know, narrative, linear narrative, quote-unquote Hollywood films or art films where, I mean, I was probably more into art films and weird Films like I remember seeing Liquid Sky in 1983. That was a huge influence. Or Brother from Another Planet, John Sayles' film. So living in New York, indie movies kind of began to inspire me. But never were the point where I was like, ooh, I'm going to make movies. Um, I was happy making short pieces and even longer pieces in the form that I was comfortable in poetry, films, you know, I was for the best, the first part of my career was way more experimental and arty than it wasn't until I moved to California that I suddenly looked at the challenge of narrative feature films as the next kind of step. And some successful, some not successful, always creatively good exercises and good, but you know, narrative-driven, plot-driven films aren't necessarily my, I think, my strength. I think something like Mothman Prophecies, which plays more into the abstract and the unconscious, Mothman is closer to the music video form for me where idea and theme and music and image all kind of rub against each other. The plot is there and the script is there, but there's a lot of freedom within it. And uh, 
you know, so those are my interests and have always been my interest of just jumping around from different kinds of self-expression, very personal expression or interpretive expression, TV, movies, short, long, whatever. Um, so that's kind of been my my jam for many, many, many years. So because I know you did a lot of documentaries, some of them very personal to you. And of course, you, you've done tons of music videos and commercials. So just following up on, on what you just said, what made you want to make the leap from all these experimental projects and interpretive stuff to doing your first feature in, uh, in 97, which is going all the way. How did that, you know, how did you take that step or why did you take that step? Well, Going All the Way was a book I read growing up and it's actually getting re-released, a director's cut of my original vision of the films being released in November by a company called Oscilloscope. So an hour of new footage, new score, new 4K restoration is being released in November, which I'm very excited about. It's a much clearer vision of what I really wanted to make, but 25 years later, I was lucky enough to get the chance to do it. Um, when I decided to make that movie, I was 34 years old and I had been making stuff for about 10 years. So when you make like collages and music videos and short documentaries and poetry films, when you, you feel like you kind of do that non-linear collage thing in your sleep, telling a story, telling a narrative story with actors is a new challenge. It's kind of like the next logical step. And that was the challenge. So I just found material that was very personal. I had been working on this other film based on a documentary about my dad, but that script was never, never kind of got, got finished. So I just chose a book that I loved growing up and decided to do that. And then Arlington Road came about totally different tone, but that came about from the same company and then just kind of go from there. But I've never lost sense of doing the experimental stuff or the music stuff I just you know you just mix it up and up until COVID it was kind of just I would go from one to another and um but I think that that challenge at the time um it's like somebody who's only written short stories and poems and novellas finally decides to write their first novel right it's like making a two-hour film is different than all the other shorter pieces. And like I said, there's things about narrative storytelling I like, and I like working with actors and characters. And there's something where the plot, the uh, emphasis on plot and logic doesn't necessarily jive with my the way my brain works or the way I artistically want to express stuff. So you have to find the right material. I really loved Arlington Road. It was the second film I watched that you made. But I know that you said previously that uh, you weren't maybe 100% pleased with it. 
some aspects of it you weren't 100% pleased with it, but have your opinion changed of that film now? That I wasn't 100% pleased with which film? Arlington Road. I love that film. I have no issue with that movie. Uh, yeah, I know, but you said in a couple of interviews that you might have made some compromises, uh, very, very few. That I can always go back to every movie and be like, oh, I would have done this a little differently, or I maybe would have been a little less expressionistic with Joan Cusack and Tim Robbins on a scene. Like, maybe it's a little too, like, you know, let the actors do a little more of the work and a little less of the expressionism. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe like the tone veered a little into trying too hard in certain scenes. Um, you know, but it was, it was ultimately kind of a heightened political melodrama, you know what I mean? Uh, it wasn't like clear and present danger or something like that. It was, it was as influenced by Rosemary's baby as anything, you know? So it's kind of a domestic terrorism horror film. Um, yeah, so probably I, I could pick apart faults in everything I've made. Uh, yeah, I love that film, actually. And uh, I was going to talk about how you deal with actors because you, because you, you, you talk about that maybe you are not uh, 100%, you know, how your, how your process works or how your artistic vision works that you might be more comfortable with looser stuff, you know, the interpretive experimental stuff, but the, the constant in your movies, uh, which is very unique when it comes to filmmakers who come from a commercials, music videos background, that many of them are basically shooters. They just are very interested in the image and the visual style, but maybe the storytelling and the character work and the performances take, you know, a back seat to the visuals. But in your movies, that's not the case. In your movies, because you've worked with some very big names, you've worked with Jeff Bridges, Richard Gere, Shirley MacLaine, but always the performances are key. The performances are always nuanced, which is something that always fascinated me about your work. Oh, so, I, yeah. I, I think I've never, even my commercials and videos were never just surface kind of pieces. Like the videos always had, even from the beginning, had some sort of point of view or emotional connection. Um, before Pearl Jam, even like late 80s videos, they were always based on an idea or had some content to them. And so I never, you know, maybe some commercials were just like, I was a shooter on some commercials, but, you know, my, my career was probably more like Spike Jones or Fincher, like really like defined, right? Like, you know, a Spike Jones short and movie by it, what it is. You know Fincher, you know Mark Romanek. Like there's a distinct point of view that comes across. And, and no offense, Michael Bay makes great, he's a great shooter, right? 
And I've worked with Jerry Bruckheimer. I did a TV show for Jerry Bruckheimer called Cold Case, right? Like, but that was a great script and great. So I've always been interested in truth, actors, performance, character, like just having something look cool for the sake of looking cool. I'm it's it's useless. Like if it's not serving the function of enhancing the overall, like that's what filmmakers do. There's a difference between a filmmaker and a director. Sometimes a director is just a shooter and the guy who says action and cut, but a filmmaker can produce, can write, can edit, can oversee the whole thing, right? So my early heroes were like Sidney Lumet and Alan Pakula and you know, filmmakers where there was a point of view and a um, an approach to the story and the content. I wasn't into fantasy or, you know, just image, no matter just even from the beginning, even my MTV promos were always like specific and at a point of view or trying to say something about the world some message, some emotional feeling. Um, and I think that that's what I've always looked for scripts like that I can connect to personally that have something to, you know, some sort of something to say. Yeah, I get that from, from, from your work because let me tell you just very, very quickly. Um, uh, as I mentioned, I did work with Nicholas Rogue later when I was older, but to me, there were a couple of transformative experiences in terms of why I wanted to become uh, a working filmmaker, which was something a bit difficult because I actually came from, you know, Egypt and, uh, and I hadn't and I wasn't able to travel at the time. But the two transformative experiences was one watching uh, the pilot, the European version of the pilot movie for Twin Peaks by David Lynch. That just movie just blew me away when I watched it. A friend of mine gave me a VHS copy that he got from London and I watched it. And I, I, I won't even discuss because I think you probably know what I'm talking about, about that movie, about that pilot. The second yeah, I love I love David Lynch. I love him. Huge influence. Like yeah. just in a different blue velvet changed my life. So yeah, did Mulholland I, Drive and Lost Highway. Yeah, I can see that definitely uh, in your work. The second movie that that basically made me 100% sure that I, I had to be a filmmaker because I, I always loved movies since I was a kid. But I was, I think, just in my first year of college and I saw the ad for the Mothman Prophecies on the internet and I went to see it, you know, cold. I didn't know much about the movie and I had, I had never seen your, your work before. Uh-huh. And I went into that movie and I watched the Mothman Prophecies and I had never seen anything like it because it was a blockbuster in terms of that it had big names and it had, you know, the poster and it had a studio behind it. 
and it's it felt so big on the screen but i had never seen a movie that used the the filmmaking tools that way you know the sound the transitions my first ex- exposure to flash frames things like that and uh, it was <laughs> it was almost like a religious experience you know because just amazing 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 experience and i loved how subdued the whole thing was and i loved how agnostic the the, the approach was and so that's how i got into your work and that's how you know i got into this kind of the the idea of you can do a, a quote unquote blockbuster with hollywood actors with a big studio but it it's basically an art film disguised as a hollywood movie and i'd never seen that before you can't do that anymore well you are doing it basically because i just saw nostalgia and i've seen all your movies and you all your movies give me that feel big name well, actors good. yeah but nostalgia was like a million dollar movie I don't think you could do a $40 million movie anymore and be that experimental. Uh, well, obviously, someone like Not you doesn't really... Not that anybody's giving me $40 million movies anymore. <laughs> yeah, very few filmmakers who are doing the work you're doing are getting the money anymore because now they are all tentpole movies uh, or movies that are basically very politicized uh, that, are get, that are getting the money, but your movies are very personal in many ways and they always feel like studio like they are studio backed even when they don't have the money and you have the actors but i always felt that you are basically cheating because you give the feeling that this is like uh, a studio movie but it's basically an art house movie disguised as a big budget studio movie that's the feeling i got from all your work so that was i'm out with you I was, I, of course, I saw that movie and it was a devastating experience. I loved that movie, uh, but it was devastating. It was just, it was such a, because I, when I watch your movies, I'm very open because I, because I always remember the experience I had with, with the Mothman prophecies. So I know it's going to be experiential. It's going to be visceral when I watch your movies. So I, you know, turn out the lights and raise the, the volume. I got a great <laughs> film that you're going to love. Um, that I just finished that it's a dance film called The Severing. But Is it the short film? No, it's a 72-minute film. Oh, wow. There's okay. no dialogue. It's just dance. But it's yeah. really beautiful. And it's about grief. The guy's name is Scout Tafoya. He's the writer. And um, since you're a fan and I grateful for your support, you know, um, it's, I think you'll dig it. You'll dig it. The subjectivity, you know, it's funny. I watched Mothman about a year ago. It was, it came on cable TV here and I watched it and it did remind me of don't look now. I was like, I was watching this movie on TV and you felt the film, so shot on film. So it felt like, even though it was early 2000s, it felt like 90s. Like we're far enough away from that era where it felt 
like a, of a different era. So like when I was growing up in the 2000s, 70s movies were that way for me, right? Body Snatchers, Don't Look Now, Clute, all those, Rosemary's Baby, they were all like the shit that informed me. So now early 2000s movies are like that. So I'm watching Mothman and I'm like, this movie is really weird. Like it doesn't make the connections. It doesn't, it's halting. Like right when you expect something, it stays longer. And then it's, it fucks with your head. But it just really was a different experience. Whereas everything now, crap movies is so presentational, right? It's so like, it's so obvious. Everything's obvious. Even in peak TV, like, scary tv and streaming tv it's all looks the same it's all shots like this the score is all it's all handsome you know what i mean it's all handsome it's all perfect the production design the cinematography looks the same in all the shows every tv show looks the same right it all looks the same a lot of filmmakers i talk to in hollywood and outside hollywood struggle to get their vision on screen on the, or streaming or whatever, but you actually managed with all your feature films, I, I think, uh, to get your vision across. You know, as you mentioned, The Mothman Prophecies was such a weird movie. I Melt With You is a devastating movie. It's devastating. I, I don't know how you got it made. I don't know how you got the cast. I paid for it, I paid for it myself. And same with nostalgia. I financed it myself. I lost a lot of money on I'm Out With You and was lucky enough to kind of break even with nostalgia. But, um, yeah, those were self-financed for like $800,000. And um, that's the only reason you get to make whatever you want and control it. It's really hard. Uh, it's so hard for me to get movies made and even more worse in the last couple of years. It's just like, there's a lot of people that are fans and believe, but like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's a terrible time. You mean because of the, of the pandemic or the, just the, the general thinking. Who makes now? movies anymore? There's no art house movies. There's no art house theaters. There's no theaters have shut down. Like there's no studios used to make 30 movies. Now they make 10 and they make Marvel movies. They don't make thrillers. They don't make streamers and the movies that streamers make. Like it's just, there's this many movies that are made as opposed to this many. I'll go show you with a newspaper from LA 2015. This many movie theaters open. Now it's like this, just the, there's less, less, less. So there's more content on Netflix and Amazon, way more TV than TVs through the roof. And uh, we're making a TV version of Mothman. Like it's been two years that we've been writing it, right? It takes forever TV. And it'll be really fun to make it. If we get to make it, it'll be as good as the movie, but it just takes forever. Movies are very, 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 have been controlled by these corporate algorithmic, like just, it's just like fewer and further between. 
So when a movie like Last Night in Soho or Nightmare Alley come out and don't do well, it's like it's harder and harder for auteur movies to get made. And those are big budget. I'm talking about I could do low budget, five million, ten million. Harder and harder. Why is it taking so long for you you mentioned the Mothman prophecies uh, TV show. Why is it taking two years to make? TV takes forever to go through the process of studios and pitching and selling and it's a nightmare. It's terrible. I hate it. Okay, so I want to ask you quickly uh, because I'm really interested in that. I, had, I touched upon it a few minutes ago, but a theme that's running throughout all your movies is this, as I mentioned, for lack of a better term, this kind of philosophical, you know, agnosticism, like with Henry Poole is here, with the Mothman prophecies, uh, with all your movies that deal with grief, death, dealing with death, Am I on the right track here with this kind of that you that you have this kind of questioning, you know, ag agnostic, philosophically, politically, spiritually uh, viewpoint in all your movies? Because that's a theme that really appeals to me in your movies. Well, I'll just put it this way. Um... Arlington Road and um, Mothman both deal with a widower, right? And that wasn't by, you know, like just that happened to be just, um, you know, a singular male character questioning the reality around them. The fact that after Mothman, my wife died is kind of weird. Right. So my father had died uh, before in 1995. So loss, deep loss and questioning loss and our purpose in life. And that permeated everything um, after his death. The music video started to question memory, mortality, um, And it found its way into Arlington Road and Mothman on a personal level. Then after my wife died, Henry Poole, I was very, very searching for faith, had gotten sober. And um, that movie, I liked the movie. It's a little sweet. My sentimental side came out. Um, I Melt With You was a reaction to that. Very dark, but still questioning. I'm in my 40s. You know, midlife, just like, what the fuck's going on? Um, nostalgia, looking back. Even other movies that I've written all have a central, probably a central character trying to unearth trauma or some mystery. As I look at other scripts that I'm trying to get made. Um, you know, I think that holding on to loss, I mean, even in a comedy, Shirley MacLaine or... You know, that's just that's just the material that I'm drawn to. Uh, in a couple of those essays that Scout Tafoya wrote that I sent you, 
he articulates it in a way that I didn't even know for myself. And you're you're seeing something in a through line of work, even back to the beginning, even back to Pearl Jam's Jeremy and my early MTV stuff, which was about kind of questioning the relationship between the viewer and the material and they're philosophical or they were okay to be dark or critical or thought provoking or, you know, I just, I've always just been, that's who I've been. That's what I've been drawn to. It's what I'm drawn to interpret or, you know, that's just my taste or my style. The style comes out of just my style comes out of my training at MTV where like I was trained to make something out of nothing. Well, what happens if I do this and, a piece of text and a slide and sound. And I was trained to do sound first before a picture for years, for years, for eight years, I did sound then picture. So when I did a movie and was like, what do you mean you locked picture? That no, it doesn't work that way. Sound and emotion guide picture. So then you learn narrative and character and plot and your mer- ah okay so i really feel like the next wave of movies i'm going to do is really going to be like the the real culmination of taking my early short form stuff and what i've learned in movies and now i hope can take it to that final level but i'm 60 and it's harder to get movies made so i'm like shit i could make 10 movies if somebody gave me the money for them but the likelihood that I got to just keep taking care of myself to increase the odds of me getting a chance to tell those stories. Um, well, I don't want to take too much of your time, but there are a couple of questions that uh, if you'll allow me, I'll ask you. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm, because I'm, I mean, and again, I could schedule, if I could leave at 945, but again, I can also schedule a follow-up with you if you'd like to. Yeah, that would be I great. I enjoy talking to you. Thank you very much. It's been it's been great. So, are you good for a couple of questions? Yeah. Yep. Uh, uh, I I want to ask you about uh, working with actors because we touched upon it a little bit. But since you come from a background, you came from a background of experimental movies and music videos. What is your process? you know, to get the performances that you get because Richard Gere and the Mothman Prophecies wasn't really the Richard Gere that I know. I mean, I, I like his work, but in your movie, his his performance is, is very, very naked, maybe for lack of a better term. So how do you get that? How do you well, get you that performance? There's no trick. I mean, you, Richard is a very smart guy and they had been wanting Richard to do a different version of that script. And it wasn't until I rewrote it with a friend, Lewis Clark, that it was like, ah, it was the version of the script that he connected to because it was kind of oblique and it wasn't answering everything. And it was kind of like philosophically a little more abstract. And he related to that. And, you know, when we sat and talked about it, he said, you know, there's almost like, you know, Richard's very spiritual. He's like, almost there's, there's like, there's two John Kleins. There's the id and the ego, right? So in a way, he kind of knew that there was two versions of him, right? 
one that was trying to like guided the search for truth, but the other one that existed outside of that. So if he looked at himself in the mirror, we realized there was really two of them, you know. Uh, and so by being able to play on those planes of abstraction and uncertainty, those are fun spaces for actors to play in, right? Uh, Jeff Bridges, Tim Robbins, Laura Linney, Shirley MacLaine, they're all great performers. And if they connect to the text, and I always say, what's your process? How do you like to work? Some like to rehearse. Some like to talk through the text. Some like to be left alone. Um, each one is different. And you just guide them through the experience and give them direction or notes. And for the most part, you know, again, each actor is different. You never direct the same for each actor is, has their own process. Jeff Bridges, early on, I remember saying, ooh, I like that take. And he goes, don't tell me you like the take. Because then his brain would start to try to repeat, right, what it was that he, um, what he did. Um, Cameron Crowe is a friend of mine. And before my first movie, he said, remember this, don't try to be best friends with your actors. Be kind of a benevolent dictator. Be like a father figure. So in going all the way, Jeremy Davies, Ben Affleck, Rose McGowan, Rachel Weisz, Amy Locaine, like some needed to be pushed, some needed to be hugged and encouraged, some needed to be left alone. Some were like, yeah, good, do another take. Other ones, you have to be really specific. Okay, I want you to put your hand over here. And, you know, like I just, I, I direct pretty intuitively. I don't didn't go to theater. I don't talk like some method. I kind of, I understand the character and we talk about it before. We make sure the text feels good. And then if I see something, I might say, hey, look, I have an idea for a visual in mind or try this and I can talk and be very open and personal. And I say, what do you think? Does that work? And they might say this or that, or I might say something and they're like, no, no, I don't want to do that. I'm like, okay. You know, they're fragile creatures and I've learned a lot from making mistakes. So you have to kind of be fearless. You, you have to like not try to control them too much yet. You need to make sure that they feel like they feel like they're in good hands. And that's really the, um, that's really the balance, right? And trying to listen to them. How do you like to be worked with? How do you like to work? And then I just adjust per piece. Yeah. Okay, I want to just ask you uh, about pro prolific film content because you are very prolific. You say uh, you, you are 60 now, but uh, I don't think... Do you, do you think you're slowing down because you have always been so prolific because I, I watched your, I, I read your credits and I watched a lot of your work. I don't think people, a lot of people know how much film you've shot, you know, how many things you've done. Yeah. And I don't think, yeah, I don't think people know about like, well, they'll know a little more when going all the way comes out and the dance film comes out. Yeah. There's, 
and a lot of stuff that never got seen. And, you know, especially since 2015, people only tend to look at like movies. And I don't know. I mean, I don't hire a publicist, you know, like it's just, it's all there. It'll all be there to be seen, you know. Um, but, you know, it's fine. I can look myself in the mirror and, yeah, like you do Star Trek shorts. Like, sure, those got nominated for an Emmy or I made a movie for Quibi called Survive. But Quibi kind of collapses so nobody really gets to see it much. It's been a lot made in the last three or four years that not a lot of people have seen. Is that why you named your company a Prolific Film Content? Because yep. you're so prolific? Uh, just because prolific means you're fruitful and abundant and like I got more ideas than I know what to do with. So I also want to just keep keep going and keep putting stuff out. So it's uh, getting there. Like the dance film coming out on Kino Lorber is good. That means it's out in the universe of media, right? Going all the way will get re-released and seen. Um, you know, Mothman will end up getting made. Um, I don't really make music videos much anymore. Um, but you know, it's, it, it's fine. I, I love, you know, a, there's a company that's going to release a, um, it's really great. Now, again, it'll be small. I think my audience is small. There's a small group of fans, but like, I know Guillermo del Toro is a fan of mine, Darren Aronofsky. So there's filmmakers that respect me, which means a lot to me. And there's a company that's going to release a double DVD of all my short form stuff, like the Chelsea Wolf film and like weird shorts and 10 minute things that never got seen. They're going to release that, you know, so that's cool. Yeah, I, uh, I actually uh, know that uh, uh, I, I listened to your uh, to your interview on the movies that made me. And I know that Joe Dante and uh, and uh, I think Josh Olson are fans of your work also. Yeah. So you know uh, what? I'm the filmmaker that never got famous, but I think that other filmmakers kind of respect. And, um, you know, like my father played professional football, right? And he was never like a big star, but he was always respected within his group. So, you know, that, that means a lot to me and I've had freedom, creative freedom. And uh, I feel lucky. I, get, I wish it wasn't so hard to get movies made now, but if your taste is your taste, you know, and they're making bad Kevin Hart movies, you know, it's harder for me and Nick Rogue to get shit made. Yeah. And, uh, you said you wanted to make at least another 10 movies. So uh, uh, the, yeah, that, get... the odds of that happening in the next 20 years are unlikely, but who knows? I can dream. Uh, thank you very much for sharing the severing with me. Oh, um, did you I, like it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it was great. It actually reminded me of the same mood it had the same effect as i melt with you and in, in in some ways so do you think they are linked somehow and in, in thematically maybe well interestingly enough if 
I Melt With You is a story of loss, of four guys losing their sense of greed, selfishness, ego, fear, and kind of self-destructing and self-emoliating over the course of the film, right? It starts with like four, four pieces coming together and then just kind of collapsing. So that's the story. And the so it's about loss and death. And it's pretty dark. So the severing is about loss and death. And um, ultimately, both are about powerlessness. The severing is a nonverbal, right? I mean, a yes, a nonverbal, non-linear, non-plot-driven story. Yet the images are basically, it's the story of someone, a physical being, who's grieving and severed, basically their heads cut off, right? They have no connection to try to connect to another person or to a group. And the difficulty in trying to connect to that group and ultimately at the end, trying to connect with that last person who ultimately abandoned you. And that's what kind of death does when somebody that you love leaves you, they kind of you feel a little bit abandoned and severed and cut off from your own sense of self. Um, so they're, you know, they're both dark and they're both probably dark in a visual sense. Um, the severing is very subconscious and uses movement and body movement and um, a consistent sonic landscape to depict that whereas i melt with you uses a varying you know sonic landscape and it's also just the fact that it's got a plot in it a story in it uh changes its direction i noticed that in the severing you use longer takes in slow motion which uh, since I, I've watched a lot of your work, I haven't really seen that before. This idea of longer takes, um, like handheld camera, but these long takes and the cutting, of course, maybe increases a bit as it goes on. But what attracted you to, to the idea of, of going against your style maybe of of cutting and and quick movement you know by My instead last, using that yeah the movie i made in 2018 called nostalgia was very slow and i was just because i was very comfortable with i love the writing was very comfortable with sitting on somebody talking um so you know each one is different um what I did when I laid out the dances for the severing and dance is a unique form. It's really easy to like chop it up and everything's choreographed and make it all look perfect. But I wanted Courtney, the main dancer, right? 
she's the one who begins, she's in the beginning, middle, and an end, right? And I wanted her dances to kind of be undiluted, unmanipulated, very little fabrication. I just wanted to respect what dance is and to like, so she's cutting herself, right? With her body movements. So one movement to another, to another, to another, she's doing the cuts. I didn't need to compress that. I wanted to honor her dance and show the it unfolding and let her performance unfold like a visual monologue. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's very different. There's no plot. Yeah. It's different energy. the movie closest to Mothman out of anything I've ever made, right? It's the least talky movie. There's no talking in it. Mothman Prophecies was probably had the least amount of dialogue and the least amount of story, right? It was a series of events that kind of unfolded. Yeah, there was a story, but it was very elliptical, right? It was kind of, it was very episodic. And the severing is a series of episodes unfolding. Um, I just, you know what? I just get tired of plot. Plot, plot, plot. So I wanted to make something where the plot was in my mind and in the dancers' gestures and, you know, and that people could feel it. And seeing it on a small screen versus a big screen. We're screening it on Saturday at a festival here. So I'm really excited because for people to see it on a big screen. And I want to know what making something like The Severing, which is a feature-length experimental movie, what does making a film like that give back to you in terms of energy or in terms of ideas going forward? It gives me more and more hope the fact that it's going to be seen out in the world and Kino Lorber is going to put it on their Kino Lorber site, like a legitimate distributor is going to have it in their world for a movie that we made for $6,000 uh, is a testimony to, yes, it's very esoteric. It's not for everybody. It's a very small niche audience, but you just have to keep making them just because it's so hard to get other kinds of movies made. It just keeps telling me to keep making low budget personal work uh, for my soul. And whether it's dance or I was going to make this musical thing a couple months ago, there was an artist, a musical artist. And I wanted to suddenly, I was like just inspired by their music And I wanted to make a mo a feature. Now I say make a feature out of it because when I had made this Chelsea Wolf film called Lone, um, which is on my website, it's a 52 minute film, also very close, like to the severing, and you know, it's six songs tied together, and there's a story in there, a little bit of voiceover, but no dialogue, and it's my favorite form. But at 50 minutes. You know, it's on iTunes and she sold it on her tour, but at 50 minutes is in no man's land. You know what I mean? Like, 
make it a feature. At least in a feature, you get to send it to festivals. And but like a 50-minute film is useless. Um I made a film that I could send you a half-hour film with Alfie Allen from Game of Thrones and Peter Bogdanovich called Night Walkers. Very abstract, but 30-minute film, like you can't do anything with it. You know what I mean? Like, what do you do with a 30-minute film? Yeah, you mentioned that I think a lot of your short uh, form work is coming out on Blu-ray, right? Yeah, this company, this this guy at Decalogue wants to put a bunch of stuff onto a Blu-ray. The Chelsea Wolf thing is 50 minutes. I don't think, and I don't own that, but the other ones I do. Um, but that'd be worth you watching the Chelsea loan. I think you'd like that. Yeah, you sent me the link, and I'll definitely uh, yeah, watch it. You'll, you'll like it. It's a it's a cousin to the Severing and Mothman, and you know it's like a big Jodorowsky movie, really. Yeah. Let me get back to I melt with you because I know that just before I say anything, I, I love that movie. It's it's I I mentioned that to you before. Although it's a very hard movie to watch, especially as it goes along, but I was really stunned to know when we last talked that it was only made for under a million out of your own money, I, I think. And you... Well, not all of it. Some of it was my own and a guy named Aaron Gilbert who runs a huge company now called Braun Studios. It was his first financing effort. And um, But yeah, it was pretty much... Let's go and just. I paid for a bunch of it. He paid for most of it. I lost a lot of money on it, but I love it. How did you, how did you get that amazing cast to commit to it? Because basically, with the budget you 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 mentioned, you you couldn't pay them basically. So the cast is amazing, and most of them give performances of of a color that they never really revealed before, especially someone like Rob Lowe, for example. Uh, so how did you get a cast like that to, to, to commit? Heidi Levitt, our casting director, you know, look, when you have a movie that like, that works on the page like that, um, when you say you're making a movie, hey, we're casting the movie, not like, hey, we want you to get involved it was also 10 years ago it was a lot easier to make an indie movie but when you say you're making it and you set a start date um and if the response to the script is good if the agencies like it i mean a lot of guys wanted to be in that movie so that's because it was an interesting meaty there were four good roles um we had a couple of showier monologues for each person in each piece, but it was like, there's a lot. And they related to it. These actors, they related to what the guys were going through. Tom, Jane, Rob, like they were all had issues with addiction, you know, alcohol, drugs, um, you know, illustrious pasts, mistakes, 
sense of self-worth. They all connected to it personally. You, you said that you made it partly as a reaction to maybe the warmth and the softness of Henry Poole is here. So what, what frame of mind were you in when you made I Melt With You? Because it's, it's almost the opposite of Henry Poole. So I just want to, you know, the, the shift from, from one project to another is very interesting to me. So I want to get an idea of what frame of mind were you in? Well, after Henry Poole, um, I was hoping to do a remake of The Orphanage for Guillermo del Toro, producing it. And they could not pull it together. And there was another movie, a thriller that was close that didn't come together. And I was so frustrated by the system, by the Hollywood system, that I was like, fuck it. And I wanted to just go make a movie. And I remembered Glenn's script. And I remember I took Steven Soderbergh to lunch and I said, would you ever put your own money into a movie? He said, absolutely. You have to will a movie into happening. So I had this script and I got Neil LeBute, read it and helped me, introduce me to Heidi Levitt, the casting director. And I think she introduced me to Tom Jane and I met Tom and he wanted to do it. And then we sent it to casting directors and Guy Pierce was going to want to be in it and Adam Scott and Dane Cook and Piven and all these people. I met all these people. And then Rob, Chris, Guy Pierce dropped out and Rob really wanted to do it. And uh, so I got within a week, I had Piven and Jane and Rob Lowe. Uh, and I knew Carla Gugino through some friends and I asked her to do it. Sasha Gray, I met through Soderbergh, said she'd be cool to be in it. And it came together really quickly. How long did it take you? I was just you? frustrated. I was like, fuck it, I got to go make a movie. I'm going to have to pay for it, you know, myself. And then my producer, Rob Cowan, helped find some of the money. How long did it take you to shoot it? And did you rehearse with, with the cast beforehand? Nope. No rehearsal. Um, maybe we read through. We had one reading, maybe. Um, just read the whole thing through. Um, we shot it in 18 days. 15 up in Big Sur, three days in L.A. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Because when you mentioned the last time that you basically made that movie with, with a non-existent budget and under the gun. I was so surprised because when I watched it for the first time, uh, I, I really, which is what keeps attracting me to your work and what attracted me to your work the first time 20 years ago when I saw the Mothman prophecies is that your work always comes across as the, the a blockbuster version of art house movies they are so polished the sound is so great it's such an immersive experience but you would never know 
without talking to to you about the ins and outs of making it that basically some of these movies like i melt with you were actually you know they are basically indies uh on the low end in terms of budget we shot on a 5d which at that point we'd just been doing commercials but i mean doing music videos with the 5d and we're like this looked great you don't need trucks you don't need any of this shit we had four or five d's with film lenses on them which they were able to figure out how to get a cinema lens on the camera which is just a data capture right now it's like a black magic cinema or a like a little small little Ari like a Alexa Mini, you know, they're just this big. They're that big. Yeah. So that was just like great. We had no trucks, we had one van with everything in it. Do you still shoot this way? You yep. know, anytime I can. Any anytime I can. Big trucks, oh, a big pilot. They've got big, stupid trucks, and it's great as long as you got the time and money. But my approach is still the same. Okay, yeah, so you know, you got to do what's right for images. And I, I often ask that like, what is production value? Like, you go into a location, and it's a big location, and you want to light it, and you see it with three cameras, and you're able to rehearse. It's like it just looks bigger, right? The production value looks bigger. But the key with um, I Melt With You is you're shooting in Big Sur, the dunes, the, the lighthouse, the house, the boat on the water, the bridges. I mean, that's amazing production value right there, just in the place you choose. So when people are like, I want to do an indie movie and I'm going to have four people in a house talking, I'm like, you better make an interesting looking house. Yeah. That's because I come from visuals. I come from commercials and videos and like making stuff look interesting has been is easy. I want to ask you about the idea because you, you mentioned it several times that you feel more comfortable with, again, the non-traditional, non-linear non kind of storytelling like the severing, for example, and even the Mothman. But I think that when you are presented or I don't want to say challenged, with more mainstream scripts like Arlington Road, maybe, or Henry Poole, or uh, your work on, on the TV show Blind Spot, for example, which, which you had a, a big hand in, in shaping uh, the, the visual style and the sound design for. It has all uh, the your, your fingerprints all over it, even till the end, because I know you directed an episode even in the last season. Yeah. So, so with mainstream scripts, with linear scripts, when you are presented, I think with good ones, and you are again, I don't want to say challenged, you know, into doing these kind of uh, narratively maybe restrictive, uh, uh, you know, stories, you seem to deliver fascinating, coherent, and maybe sometimes even groundbreaking stuff in terms of what is done in the mainstream of tv and film so well thanks well i hope i can do that soon with streaming uh with mothman um i don't know i think there's a lot of boring tv um but you know again i just look for a good i look for emotion and i look for a good script and linear non you know 
I look for opportunities where I feel it, right? It's like, it's all like music videos, right? A script is like a song. And if I read the script, it's like listening to the song. And if I love it and I can see it and design it on a subconscious level and really get inside of it, inside of the characters, inside of the story, inside of, if I can feel it inside, then, then I can do my thing. Can you talk a little bit about what attracts you what kind of projects especially now since you're talking about streaming and developing your own stuff maybe through uh, prolific your, your own company what uh, what kind of projects are you attracted to in terms of streaming and tv and and that kind of of, of you know arena when i think of ideas i think of movies i don't think of tv shows um All the ideas I generate tend to be movies. So we're doing a TV version of Mothman Prophecies, a TV version of a, a story about a ska and punk club in 1981 in LA. Um, you know, stories where music or genre is in it. But when I come up with ideas, I'm finishing a script now about it's kind of like a David Lynchy kind of movie about a security guard and who steals photographs from these rich mansions. And it's very beautiful. I love it. But again, these are hard movies to get made. But until I get the script done and finished and out there and try to get actors, that seems to be my full time job. Memory, I like memory and image and loss. And finally, I really want to do a couple of love stories. A couple of things I finished are love stories. Supernatural stuff. So that's what I've been developing and writing. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, what kind of books do you like? Because I guess... Two of your films, I think, were based on books. The Mothman Prophecies, of course, it was nonfiction. But I think uh, also going all the way was based on a book. So what, are you interested in, in, in adapting books? And what kind of books do you like? I read mostly nonfiction Although I'm reading Michael Mann's uh, Heat 2 right now. Because um, I love Heat. One of my favorite movies. So basically, uh, you, you are going to be involved with, with these TV projects you mentioned. Like the Mothman Prophecies, you are going to maybe do the pilot for it or something If like that. We can that. sell it. It's been taking forever. Yeah. So TV takes forever. That's what I don't like about it. So I, again, I'm 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 really anxious to see what what you what you do with 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 TV when you initiate actually the project through your your company or through a script that you develop, because what you do with with TV uh, with scripts that you didn't develop like Blind Spot or Cold Case is always very interesting, and I would never watch a show like Cold Case 
I would never even think of watching it. Uh, I would I would have never thought of watching it without knowing that you directed the pilot, and I think you directed some episodes as well of Cold Case. Of what? Cold, yeah, for several yeah. years. Because, uh, which is ironic. That's why I keep coming back to this point, which is ironic because you 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 think you you keep saying that you are maybe less comfortable with traditional narrative but 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 when you do traditional narrative stuff i think the mixture of the combination of your style and a mainstream a mainstream script always brings out something in you and yeah. your work is that just uh, amazing i mean cold thank you cold case was a long time ago cold case is like things have changed in the last five years you know so in what way in your opinion i think streaming has just gotten i, I don't know i just watch it like i think cold case we shot on film right everything now is digital people shoot on the alexa or the red It all looks, it all feels the same to me. Yeah, but you do the same thing. You do shoot with these cameras and your results are different. So it's not really there the equipment. Go. Yeah, it's not really the equipment. I think it's the, it's the point of I think view. it's the approach, basically. You know, here's the movie. I watched The Northman last week, right, on a plane. Did you see yeah. The Northman? No, I haven't seen it. I know it. I know. Uh, yeah, it's directed by Robert Eggers. Yeah. Mind blown. I was like, there you go. Like, just incredible visual, sonic. So the streaming thing, the, the, the whole TV long form thing, like what Tim Burton is doing with the what Adam's family or what David Lynch maybe did with the third season of Twin Peaks, this kind of long form you know multi-episode stuff doesn't really appeal to you no sure it does like if we do mothman i want to direct them all um if we can ever get it made it's just been so long i've been working on it i've like lost all my interest in it i also heard that i think at one point arlington road was being developed for television right yep we can't get it sold we wrote a script. It's a great script. We can't get it made. Yeah, because it's more timely than ever. So it's very strange, actually. I don't know why. Can't make it. Yeah. So I think it's too dark. People think it's too dark. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. Some of the stuff that's being made today is also very dark, but I don't know. Maybe... Uh, I always thought Arlington Road was, was a very dark movie, but it had a purpose. Some of the stuff now that's being made that's called uh, dark or edgy or whatever, I think it's more nihilistic than actually dark. And I've never seen really nihilism in your work. Even I melt with you, I never really got that thing because today the nihilism is overwhelming. It's off-putting. Yeah. It's, it's just... It's just, you know, uh, really, really, really unappealing, at least to me. It's very, very unappealing. Uh, so what are you working on now? I know you are developing this Lynchian movie about this about the security guard that you mentioned. Or you're developing the Mothman for television. So are you working on something at the, at the moment? 
actually something uh, are you shooting something now or are just uh, we are just developing and there's an anti-war uh, contained thriller called tactics that i hope to do and a black a uh, super black comic noir called catalina that i'm trying to get made and a thriller called lone wolf with um Melissa Barrera attached. Those are the three closest. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate it and hopefully we'll meet someday. Thank you very much. You got it. See you Thank soon. Thanks for listening and please join me again on another episode of The Dark Fantastic Podcast. Death is a man in black and he has gone insane, slaughtering the innocent. Only X, an amnesiac who wakes up to find his wife dead beside him, can stop him. Now, X, along with a band of heroes hunting the man in black, have to embark on a terrifying journey through the cursed town of Crofton, and into a haunted house filled with secrets, to find the only thing that can stop death. From A. Kale, the number one best-selling author of Bad Dreams. Coffin X, a terrifying novel of dark fantasy and horror. Now available on Amazon.